this past week, I sent out something that was uh, uh, kind of an eye-opener for me when it comes to the matter of praying, and that is the fact that, uh, you know, we have two kinds of crisis in life. We have that which is real, real crisis, your health is, you do have this, or you will have that. And then we have perceived, which is, I can imagine it might go this way. <laughs> okay, it could be that. And we're all guilty of, of spending a lot of time in the perceived crisis rather than probably the real crisis. And I noticed that in my life anyway, the, the perceived crisis and the perceived mode of prayer seems to be empty and non-productive as opposed to when it's a real crisis in front of me. So I find that to be a ploy that the enemy uses to knock us off of our fulcrum, if you will, in order to get us off, off balance to not pray as we should because we don't want to pray uh, amiss from what God is directing us to. So I want to talk about discouragement in prayer today. On my sabbatical, um, as I have shared with you before, God has impressed me severely with the fact that we can no longer be casual as we have been in our prayer life. We cannot. I don't care how long you've been a Christian, whether it's been a month or a hundred months, okay? I don't care how old you are in the faith. Our, our time demands more focused, travailing prayer. We're going to have to fight for it. We can no longer use that margin of comfort and time to pray casually. The hour is, is getting darker, hotter, and more intense. Where is this battle won? It's won in prayer. And, and you say, boy, you own this prayer thing hard because I've come to understand that prayer is the very breath that sustains us as we read our Bibles and as we talk to God, we are breathing in heaven and we are exhaling strength. If we have got to understand that, that prayer is not garnish on the Christian's plate. We have to look at the model of our salvation, Jesus Christ Himself, and how much priority He put on praying. He was always sneaking away to do it. And as I say again, which I think is so profound, He did this as a perfect man with no sins of His own to confess, and He still had to pray as much as He had to. And he didn't eat sometimes because he, would, he had greater need of spending time with the Father. And he says, I have bread to eat of which you know not of. When they were wondering, have you ate? We don't have that same seriousness with prayer. I look over here at Matt and other uh, 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 of you that are in law enforcement and I can imagine, there you are. You show up to a, to a, a, a break-in or, or maybe there's a mass shooting. And you happen to be the one that stumbles upon the shooter. 
and you've come prepared with your badge. And you hold it up and you say, Stop it, bad guy. Or else I will tell you again. (laughs) It's in that moment you're going to realize that while it's good that, that you have the badge, you carry the authority of the state with you, you're missing something very important. You're missing your gun. You need it. You're, you're, you're unarmed. The Word of God in prayer is your armament. And, and many times we tend to think that if we just major, we major on the Word really well. But when it comes to prayer, you have to admit, our wheels get squeaky. It's, oh, you know, I'm not talking about the pray for our food. Pray for a good trip. Pray for, uh, you know, what you do before you have a Sunday school class. But prevailing warlike prayer. So I've learned a lesson that I want to talk to you about this week that's happened after my time of sabbatical. It'll only take four weeks to happen. I believe this. When you determine to pray like Jesus commanded you to pray and do business with God, you're going to be hit with discouragement like you've never known in the prayer room. Think of it like this. I was talking to JT this morning. Why was the atomic bomb made? It was made to shut down the war machine of Japan. They weren't going to stop. They had moved all of their armament making, munitions making, and development into the homes of its citizenry. Buried it among the houses and the farms. And we knew that if we could take away their munitions, they wouldn't be able to shoot a gun anymore. They would be down to sticks and pitchforks. And it worked. Very effectively. Opened up Pandora's box too. The devil wants nothing more than to keep you from praying. And he wants more than that, nothing more than to keep you from praying the word. When we say the word prayer, we often think of the cutesy little hmm. Uh, Norman Rockwell, and then those little figurines you get in the Hallmark store, you know. Mm. But I'm learning that 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 we don't. I don't think our English word for prayer is is adequate to describe that activity of doing business with God and in intercession. I don't think our word. I think our word is too nice. I think it's too fluffy. I think it's it's too manicured. Because I'm here to tell you. It's like sticking your head in a lawnmower sometimes. Sometimes you're going to get attacked in your prayer closet to just shut you down. So, we're going to be looking at Exodus 17, and you can go ahead and find that if you want to.
would be really appreciative of that, verses 8 through 16. But while we're getting there, I want to kind of set the stage for the inconvenient truth about prayer. I'm going to read from a man named Franz Baker. I think it's two Ks there. Baker, okay? Uh, He was Dutch, I believe. Um, This book was translated out of Dutch. He was a pastor for a little more than eight years. Didn't start till he was 37. Said he wasn't really a great preacher, but apparently he was a wonderful communicator of God's precious truth, especially concerning prayer. And that's the legacy, actually, that he leaves behind. He writes this, To be sure... This life of prayer does not always function actively from day to day. It does not function automatically, for it is so tender and so intimate. At times, the heart can be cold and prayerless. Have you ever had that? At times? Heaven can seem so closed that no prayer seems to penetrate. You ever had that happen? Those who truly pray, now notice this, he he. He makes a a distinction here. Those who truly pray will more and more shamefully and painfully, and that's true, learn that they cannot pray. Yet they will not exchange even the unhappiness experienced in the closet for all the joys of the world. Unhappiness here is preferred to the happiness of the world. Daniel would rather go into the lion's den than leave his prayer closet. When he says, those who truly pray, here's what he's meaning. Not the cutesy prayers that we pray before we do something. Not the opening and closing statements of a lesson. But soul travail against the darkness of this age. When's the last time that you prayed for those wicked leaders that you know are spewing Satan's venom all over the world they possess? When's the last time you played for their conversion to become a trophy of grace so that God might use them like the Apostle Paul and set their whole world upside down? That kind of prayer? You're going to have the howitzers of hell pushed right in your throat. When you pray like that, and you pray for that friend who's taken captive by meth and alcohol and indifference to God and the atheism and darkness and secular humanism of the age, and you begin to pray for that man's soul, and you begin to pray for everything that he does, you are asking to be shot at. I promise you, when you begin to pray for your children and their souls without mercy, when you begin to go to God with a severity that you can't sleep, lest you know you've brought up their soul before God and your friends and your nation and your churches. When you begin to pray like that, that you sweat and you cry and you weep, then you know that hell is coming for you to shut you down. It's called the nuclear option. Because God is drawn that kind of praying it's the not messing around praying it's it's not the oh it's sprinkling type of praying it's the fire hose on your head type of praying and you're going to get discouraged that's the very first place that you'll be attacked is by being discouraged luke 18 1 Jesus, and we read this last week, but he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray. And what does he say? 
not to lose heart. Well, what does that mean? That you probably are going to lose heart. Why are you going to lose heart? Because you're going to be attacked right in the prayer closet. Why are you going to be attacked? To shut you down. That's how serious the devil sees the saints when they pray. 2 Corinthians 4.1 Therefore, since we have this ministry... As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Why does, why does he have to say that? Because we do lose heart. In 16, 1 of Corinthians, therefore we do not lose heart. <laughs> Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Discouragement is part of the Christian experience. Discouragement is in prayer, therefore, is not if it will happen, but rather when it happens. And, and something else that's really amazing here, uh, look within 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. We are very prone to cease. In Galatians 6.9, where it says, let us not grow weary while, while well-doing. These verses here in Galatians 6.9, and 5.17, and the preceding ones, they're all the same Greek verb for, here's what A.T. Robertson said, let us not keep on giving in to evil while doing the good. All of those preceding verses is that same Greek word for to not lose heart, don't give in to evil. Don't lose heart by giving into evil. Uh, uh, since we have this ministry of receive mercy, don't lose heart and give into the evil. And then in 16:1, do not lose heart by be giving into the evil around you, because your outward man may be perishing. But understand that man that's inside of you, that's of Jesus Christ in you, is going to be exalted among you, and you he will have the last word, and you have the victory. Not that you will have it, it's here today if you're in Jesus. Now pray like it, because that's who you are. That's your position. That's your inheritance. You possess it. Now shoot the gun. <laughs> and that's what Jesus is saying. You say, why are you yelling? Because I can't help it. We don't have time to fool around anymore. We all know that the Christian experience of the United States of America has been an anomaly, a rare, unusual anomaly in the history of the Christian church. We haven't been persecuted. We haven't been really ridiculed. We haven't been chased down. And we've had all this time to grow fat and comfortable and apathetic and lethargic in our facilities. We're facility rich, but ministry poor. But those days are quickly coming to an end. I was talking to my friend back in Oklahoma. He seems to remember the books he read in high school, and he's old. So he's got a good mind. But he was reading some book that was written by a very self-pronounced atheist. And it was just, it was sort of one of those 1984 type books. Written from an atheist point of view where 
religion had been made illegal and, you know, they had the, in order to compensate for people's need to worship something from that biological need, as they call it, they made them worship uh, their feet. Or, it was some bizarre thing. But he made a comment in the book that I think is very prescient. And he said this, in order for religion to thrive, it must first become illegal. Now, we've been in the warm-up stages of that. You need to pray. You need to use whatever word you think about doing with business with God is. You say, I have my own words. Sometimes people say, hey, Mickey, can you meet me over here? No, i got a meeting. I'm in a meeting. They just don't know who, who I'm meeting. Well, i tell you who I'm meeting, the one who sits upon the throne. That beckons me to come with boldness. The one where the very seraphim fly and scream, holy, holy, holy. That's where I get to go when I pray. When you get to pray, that's where you get to go. And the devil will do anything to keep you from there. So, if you determine to become a prayer warrior, if you determine to become a man or a woman of deep, travailing prayer. It's work. It's battle. It isn't going to be fun and rosy. It's going to be hot and humid. There's going to be a wind coming at you. There's going to be loose rocks under your feet and you're going to fall and you're going to get scraped and bruised you're going to be told you're sorry. You're going to be having every sin you've committed thrown at you like a movie theater telling you about how unworthy you are to come. And I say, go to your advocate and you pray through. Don't take your eyes off Christ and do battle. That's where it's won. Oh, by the way, here's how you know when the church begins to pray that way. Revival falls. God's Spirit descends. Suddenly, it's your food. Suddenly, you can't help it. You need, you need to pray. And even though you know what you're headed into, you need to be there. the reason we encounter discouragement in prayer, notice Galatians 5.17 in the New Living Translation says the sinful nature, <laughs> the sinful nature wants to do evil. You notice that? Which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. My good intention is that I'm going to go pray for for an extended period of time today. But oh no, I'm I'm going to pray and suddenly I'm distracted. I'm uncomfortable. I don't know. My thoughts are gone. I, I feel just discouraged. I'm just going to leave. That war of your flesh 
The flesh is fighting you to keep you from there. Ephesians 6, 12, and 13, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And then, after you've stood, just keep standing. Do you do that? Do you pray like that? You should be broken right now at home in your time alone with God because you give up too much, too quick, too soon. We all do. So I've learned, I've learned about the first thing that I need to pray about when I feel discouraged. Oh God, give me a spirit of prayer in the first place. Give me desperation. Bring on the weight of the kingdom work. And then, Spirit of God, empower me to pray through. You say, well, what does that mean, praying through? It means this. In World War I, when the men came up out of the trenches... And they ran towards the Germans' positions. They had fixed machine gun emplacements in a perfect interlocking grid that practically no one could get through. But they just kept charging through. Some made it. They, if you will, they prayed through. You got to take the casualties. You got to take the wounds. You got to take the shrapnel. You got to take the barrage. You pray through. Because if you don't, well, you're going to get to know Amalek really well. He's going to rule over you. Now we get into then the meat of the passage today. Discouragement in the prayer room is your adversary, Amalek. Let's read, if we will, in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. A very beautiful passage of Scripture, but a very revealing one. Moses has led the children of Israel out of uh, Egypt. He has delivered them from Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. They have received bread from heaven, known as manna. They're thirsty. They have just engaged in their fourth complaint against God who's delivering them. And Moses makes water come out of the rock for the first time. And it's just pouring out because you have to understand something about God. You ask him for little bitty things. He wants to give you a whole platter. God's not into doing little things. And then they've drank, and there they are just swimming in the desert. Now notice verse 8. <clears throat> now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. 
Who is Amalek? He's Esau's grandson. He is an enemy of these people. A mortal, insidious enemy that loves to take advantage of weakness. Who's Amalek now? He's your flesh. He's the devil. He's the world. We read, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron, and this is... And Aaron and Hur supported his hands. One on one side, and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun... So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn... The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Here's the bitter truth and the inconvenient truth that you will find in your prayer closet when you choose to pray and become that kind of a prayer warrior. You're going to have to fight off Amalek. You just think you're going to be in there in a climate-controlled environment with a lemonade in one hand and a prayer request on the other? No. That's not how it works. Amalek represents the world and the flesh and he is an enemy that will seek to attack you and he will attack you to just simply keep you from having victory, especially in prayer. A.W. Pink said, It was when Moses smote the rock and the waters were given, then for the first time, now notice this, Israel was called upon to do some fighting. Do you know what the rock and the water represent? The Holy Spirit. You've been given the Holy Spirit, if you know Jesus, to engage in kingdom work. We weren't meant to do this in our own self. You, you, do you ever think for a second, if the Holy Spirit is to teach us what Jesus said in the Word, then the Holy Spirit also has to empower us to pray. We don't have the strength. Many of us start out like new runners on the road. It's been a while, you know. And you you get a desire to be fit. And you're going to go run. Well, that first quarter mile is easy. You think, I could do this all day. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, Things don't feel right. All of a sudden, you you just feel bad. And now it's work. 
if you're going to finish your two miles or five or six or whatever you do, it's work. It's one foot after the other in spite of the pain, in spite of the fatigue, in spite of the dry mouth or the throw up in the mouth or whatever it is you're doing. You run on because you know it's needed. Now that's just personal fitness. We're talking about God's kingdom work on earth here. We're talking about the nation of the United States and her church that's inside of it. We're talking about the entire western hemisphere of Christianity as we know it that's produced men like Spurgeon and, and Moody and Whitfield and Edwards and scores of others, Martin Lloyd-Jones and, and all the reformers. We're talking about all these places that were once bastions of sound doctrine and strong men of faith have now become places where you can go learn to be with the gay community of Christ. You think you're going to just casually walk into that prayer room and take on that? No, you're not. Mm-mm. It's time to fight. You have the Spirit. If you're in Jesus, you have the Spirit. Now go pray like you have the Spirit. They had done no fighting in the house of bondage, nor had the Lord called upon them to fight the Egyptians at the Red Sea. But now that which typified the Holy Spirit had been given, their warfare commenced. Yes, it was the, that which typified the Holy Spirit that caused the Amicalites to attack Israel. God will never fight you until you're God's man and woman. I mean, Satan will never fight you until you are one of God's people. As long as you're Satan's person, you're left alone. You're no threat. But as a Christian even, if you're not engaged in God's kingdom work, and you're just being casual, you're going to be okay. But the moment you step into your calling, you can better believe the bombs are going to fall. The new nature in the believer delights to feed upon the word, to commune with God and be engaged with spiritual things, but the flesh will not let him live in peace. Just every time you determine to go have extended time alone with God in prayer, what happens? You all know. I don't have to tell you. And for some of you, you're thinking, I don't even think about it. And that's bad. Sometimes the battle is too great for you. I, I love this passage here. Verse 9 and 10. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men to go out and fight with Amalek. Choose us some men. And tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So far Moses thinks I'm going to go do this by myself. I'm going to go stand up there with my rod because it does lots of cool stuff. And, and, and you younger fellers are going to go down there and engage the enemy. And that's how it's going to work because that's where the fight is where you can take your sword and right off. And I'm going to go up there on the hill and observe and hold up my stick. And it's going to work out just like the Red Sea and stuff. 
The significance of Moses' attitude is clearly defined in several scriptures. The uplifted hand was emblematic of prayer. The supplicating of God. When Moses went up there, it was, it was tantamount to him going, saying, I'm going to go pray for you guys. Psalm 28 and 2, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracle. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. We have this as a model. But then second, observe, and this is where it gets kind of unique. Moses' hands grew heavy. Let's read in the text. So, verse 10, Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill because so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed and when he let down his hand that Amalek prevailed. Well, Joshua's thinking, this isn't about swords and spears. This is about praying. This is about, this is about Moses being held up. This is, this is a different kind of battle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of darkness in the heavenly places. We got to get real with the fact that there are literal demons in the world today. We got to remember the fact that they're in the atmosphere, whatever that is. I don't even know the ether. I don't know. I just know this, that they bugged Jesus when he was on earth and they haven't went anywhere. It says in verse 12, but Moses' hands became heavy. They became heavy. This is where I want to get to. How soon we grow weary of supplicating God. Remember Jesus' words, praying and not fainting. But how sadly we fail, as A.W. Pink writes, how quickly our heart gets heavy. And as soon as we lose the spirit that depends upon God, the flesh prevails. Do you really think because you get to feeling bad in the prayer closet that you have a right to quit? Aren't you grateful for those men who charged those machine gun nests in spite of the fact that what it would cost them? Sometimes, though, the battle is too great for you alone and you need help, and this is where I want to get to. Aaron was the head of Israel's priesthood. And so he, according to the text, represents our great high priest there. Her, the other man, means light and the emblem of divine holiness and so points to the Holy Spirit of God. Thus God in his grace has fully provided for us, supported on either side, both the earthly and the heavenly, the Spirit helps in our, in our infirmities. When we go to prayer, we are coming with Jesus on this side and the Holy Spirit on this side. And guess who's in the middle being carried along? That is what's happening in the prayer room. Don't you forget it. I want to make a note here. I went a little beyond pink a little, but he says, do you have, I, I, do you, I want to just ask, do you have those who are ready to go to war with you in prayer? Because I want to tell you what's happened to me. 
I can't bear the burden alone. Sometimes I'm getting shelled so hard that my prayer closet has become a not a happy place. It's a place of conflict. And I get discouraged. I have men that I call. And I say, I'm discouraged. Will you pray with me today? Throughout the day. Will you hold up this arm? And, and brother, would you hold up this arm? And would you pray with me today concerning this? Because I can't do it alone. God invests His strength in His body. We are to bear and share one another's burdens. If you don't ask, we don't know. And then my friends, my brothers, they'll call me sometimes and they'll say, it's too much for me to bear. Would you help me bear this today? My hands are heavy. I'm discouraged. And I pray. And I go to war with them. Do you have those who, you, who go to war with you? Because there are some battles and seasons of prayer we need help to fight through. Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Do you notice this wasn't a quick exchange? Do you know that it's not uncommon in the history of the Christian church for men and women who love Jesus, who are committed to His great name to pray sometimes up to eight and nine and ten hours a day? And I just think when I read that stuff, I'm like, what? I don't even, it's like saying go run 100 miles. What? What? I don't even, I can't, but you have to understand they've been conditioned out of desperation. They have first submitted themselves to this need. They've understood and embraced the seriousness of this great weapon we possess. And they've taken it on no matter the cost. And God has grown them to be able, I guess, <laughs> to pray for eight and nine and ten hours a day. They don't do it every day. But when it's needed, that's what they do. I was reading about one man, and I don't remember his name. It could have been John Praying Hyde, I think, H-Y-D-E. He was known for this. It wasn't uncommon for John to go into his bedroom at night and pray all through the night, and he would get up. The carpet where he had laid was literally wet with sweat. In fact, some would even say that he prayed and fasted so often that he died early because his body was literally just wore out. But everywhere John praying Hyde went, revival followed. Oh yeah, you, you often hear about Moody and you hear about Edwards and you hear about Whitfield, but you don't hear about the prayer warriors behind them. But they're there. That wouldn't have been happening if they hadn't have been there. 
Archbishop Richard Genevieve Trench, Anglican Bishop, 1807-1886, he says this, We must pray in the Spirit. In the Holy Spirit, if we would pray at all. And what he's saying here is, I must get my mind right and my heart right when I come into the throne room. I must take my plans and my petitions and I must align them with God's will. And then I simply yield myself to the good pleasure of the Spirit as He leads in prayer. Lay this, I beseech you, to heart, he says. Do not address yourselves to prayer as to a work to be accomplished in your own natural strength. Don't do that. You will be mowed over. It is a work of God. Of God the Holy Spirit. A work of His, now notice what he says, in you and by you, in which you must be fellow workers with Him. But his work notwithstanding. Verse 13. Josh, so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people. Because as they held up Moses, who is the symbol of prayer, and as Joshua represented Jesus, our great high priest, and as her represented the Holy Spirit of God, and Moses representing prayer and, and the petitioner, victory was won this day. Then the Lord said to Moses, and I think this is important, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. In other words, he says, what's happened here today Write this down. Don't you forget what happened here today. Jesus has defeated Amalek. The dude has no teeth left in his head. He can only gum on you. But he's a good liar. He gets in your head. And He upsets your confidence. And He makes you depressed and discouraged and doubtful. And when you do that, you become a casualty. If you want to see revival happen in the western hemisphere of Christianity, starting at Northridge, if we really want to see it happen, if we really do, like, like if, that's our, if that's our hope, because we know that, that for us, that's the nuclear option then your prayers, your praying, and your attitude in the prayer closet, it's going to determine if that comes. God has never brought revival to a prayerless church. But when they start and set themselves to praying, history has shown God moves. He's drawn to it. I believe that we can have revival in the midst of judgment because it's happened before. And I learned something, and I'll, I'll finish with this. 
People say, can, well, this is the last days. Can you have revival in the last days? And wow, what an epiphany. This Scottish preacher, Irish actually, as he was preaching, he goes, you know, you've got to remember something. It's been the last days since Jesus. And, and the last days won't end until Jesus comes back. So every revival that's ever happened, guess when they happened? In the last days. You should take heart, and I should take heart. You, you go home, and you find some time to be alone with God in extended prayer, and, and, and go get in shape. Go hurt. You know, let those calves tense up. Let that stomach begin to churn. Let your, let your body get hot with sweat. Begin to be fatigued and ache. But pray through. Pray through. And one day you're going to be running six miles. And you're going to enjoy it. And you're going to take the heat. And you're going to take the battle. And things are going to begin to change around you. I promise you. It's a Bible promise. I want to ask JT to come. Some of you may be here today and and you've been inspired and said, man, I, I need to pray more. Well, that's how you feel right now. But Amalek is just outside the door. He's he's literally just outside the door. No, actually, he's sitting right in your lap. And he is ready to, to, to take and say, feel good, man, yes. And then you will make it through the end of the evening and you won't have prayed a lick. He's that good. I think today... For the invitation time. I'm going to invite you as you sit where you are. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. First, I want to encourage you to ask God for a spirit of prayer and desperation. Confess to Him that you just aren't burdened. Confess to Him that you're just too easily defeated. And ask Him to help you become a man or woman of God of prayer. Some of you here, you can't pray because you don't know Jesus Christ. You don't know the Lord at all. You got religion real well. You might even have a prayer under your belt one day that you prayed. But your life doesn't reflect the reality of a living Savior inside of you. I want you to know something. If you're here, God is extending you grace and He's bidding you repent of your sins that your sins may be blotted out so that His refreshing may come to you. Receive with meekness this this word and, and cry out to Jesus to save your soul once and for all. Commit your life to Him. Live for Him. And to us as a whole church, I would say, we have a decision to make. It is upon us. There's no more time left. Are we going to take up the mantle of waging war in the prayer closets of our life? It's time. As JT plays for a bit, the altar is open. Do as God leads you.